Hello you, welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we're talking about high fidelity and we're talking about it with Kate Sloan. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. High Fidelity is a year 2000 American romantic comedy drama film directed by Stephen Frears. The film is based on the 1995 British novel of the same name by Nick Hornby. Kate Sloan is a sex writer, a podcaster, uh, one of the hosts of the Dildorks and Question Box Show. Kate's also an author of 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do and a singer-songwriter. You can find links to all the things that Kate does in the show notes, but one of my favorite things that Kate puts out into the world is this ongoing Sex in the City Twitter thread. It's just like all of these observations of rewatching Sex in the City. I love it. It's great for all of the Sex in the City viewing we're doing for our bonuses. It's a lovely companion. So uh, uh, yeah, check out all of the things, but definitely check out the link to the Twitter thread on Sex in the City. It makes me uh, laugh so, so hard. How's everything going out there in the world? How is the unfolding of summer? We're getting so close to what is technically summer, though uh, in many places the summer is already happening. How is it going? How is your life? How is your world? What's the last great meal that you had? What's the last great book that you read? What's the last great movie that you saw? How is it all going? However it is, I hope it's good. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. We recently had an episode come out on uh, the movie Manhunter and uh, the the Lecterverse, as Sarah called it. <laughs> we started talking about portrayals of Hannibal Lecter on screen. We'll be back to the Sex and the City chats again uh, soon, probably next month. After we talk about all sorts of things in the bonus conversations. But you support this show financially, a handful of dollars a month, uh, Sometimes people give a a cluster of dollars per year, whatever it may be, and you get bonus episodes in return for your support. So thank you, everyone who helps make this show our jobs. We really appreciate you. We appreciate that we get to do this. Again, in exchange, you get those bonus episodes. Oh, and you know, we used to have playlists that would accompany all of our episodes, but we got busy because we were on a tour for a couple of months. But uh, I think the playlists will be back for this week at least. So look in the show notes for a link to uh, a playlist. This is the perfect movie to have a playlist to accompany. It's songsy, you know? It's about a guy who works at a record store and his guy friends who also work at a record store. They talk about songs all the time. That's what it's all about. So check out the show notes for a link to a playlist. Thank you for listening. All right, that's it from me for now. Let's get into it. Let's talk high fidelity with Kate Sloan. Uh, hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Or as they say in Chicago, hello. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Have you seen any movies lately about how it's okay to be horny and fucked up at the same time? Yeah, all of them. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they're all about, really. (laughs) Have you seen any movies about the epic saga of a man growing emotionally just a tiny little bit? (laughs) 
I, watching this movie at 40 is much different than having watched it in the theater at 17. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're talking about high fidelity and I am so excited to talk about this. But first, let's introduce uh, the guest who brought us high fidelity, who is Kate Sloan. Hello. Nice to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. It was my favorite movie for so many years. Uh, it no longer holds that slot because I think it didn't entirely age that great. But like, I still have a great fondness for it, I got to say. Beautiful. Did you work at a record store? No, I worked at sex shops, uh, which is not that similar. But like, you know, there is a similar level of like snobbery and like getting to know customers <laughs> and secretly judging customers. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Alex, did you work at a record store? Oh, yeah. You worked at that place, right? Yeah, I worked at the Hipster Mall in uh, Portland, Maine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I worked at a bookstore and coffee shop upstairs. And then de- next door was a comic book shop. And then downstairs, there was a indie video store. And then next to that was an indie record store. Mm-hmm. So this culture is very familiar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I uh, grew up in Portland and have been shopping. So... <laughs> I feel like you must, even though this is a Chicago movie based on not a Chicago book, you must be familiar with these guys. One of the bittersweet maybe things about music being disseminated the way it is now is that today in order to buy an album that you're curious about, you don't have to like get through the gauntlet of guys who can only grow hair on some parts of their faces. (laughs) (laughs) Harsh, but fair. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which, like, if you already feel judged by everyone anyway, because you're 14 and you're me, you just, like, buy a lot of shit you don't even like. <laughs> this is so true. Um, Sarah, do you want to tell us about what this movie is about? Yes, I would so adore to. And I will also say that this is a movie that I saw on an airplane when I was 12, and it inaugurated, in a way I now find troubling, my gigantic formative crush on John Cusack. Cusack, <laughs> not Cusack. He looks so cute in this movie. He's so fucking cute. And also I'm like, Sarah, this is a grown man. Like, do you want to focus on kids your own age? No? Okay. <laughs> Never. Never. And in eighth grade, I had a picture of John Cusack that I kept next to my bed. <laughs> like Karen Knightley and Benda, like Beckham. I had a picture of Jack Black next to my bed. Oh, really? <laughs> that's, I think that's so much healthier. <laughs> but all that's to say that, like, yeah, this is my baggage with this movie. And yes. All right. So what the plot of High Fidelity is that Rob Gordon, our protagonist, who is in true like 90s fashion, this movie came out in 2000, but 2000 is the 90s, is a sad sack loser who owns his own record store. He owns a store and he's like, I'm a failure, womp womp. And it's like, Rob, you're a business owner. (laughs) And so we meet him basically at the moment that his girlfriend, Laura, is moving out. And so he's decided he's going to compile a list of his top five other breakups to keep her out of the top five of breakups. And he's going to go through all of his records, which they live in the library of his records. I think she moved out because he needs a better record storage situation is honestly what I I think it's oppressive in there. (laughs) So she leaves and it's based. And I feel like when you see this movie in like the sort of IMDb summary capacity, it's like, 
After a recent breakup, a man decides to contact his most significant exes. But that's actually like probably about 12 minutes of this movie. Yeah, I thought that that plot was the whole movie. And then, yeah, similarly, I was like, oh, it just kind of happens in passing. And it's just a tiny little mannequin that they've put all these giant clothes on. You know, it's just the (laughs) tiniest little structural excuse for the whole thing. The flavor and the structure of this movie is like wandering around with John Cusack immediately post breakup in Chicago while he just tells you all his thoughts and feelings. And a lot of it is like shitty guy stuff, but he's like, he's like, I'm self-aware. I know I'm shitty, but here's the ways I'm shitty. And you're like, oh, well, if you're self-aware about it, that's good enough for the year 2000. Pretty good. (laughs) You make a little bit of effort. At the very end, and we're like, wow, unprecedented. Um, yeah, and he like he does kind of a lot of stalking in this movie, which I really didn't remember. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you see it at the time, and maybe it's like a, a better way to, to say this movie didn't age well. Like, maybe it's more true that like we have aged well, and this movie has hmm. stayed the same age. Exactly, yeah. I, I had such a crush on Rob when I first saw this movie, and was like, yeah, he has problems, but like... He loves her and that's why he's doing this. I can fix him. Yeah, I can fix him and, and it would be okay. And he just he's just doing this because he wants her back and he loves her. And like when you rewatch it, it really is like not only is he stalking Laura, but also there's some pretty intense like sexual assault stuff when he flashes yeah. back to his high school girlfriend, like yeah, yeah. keeping trying to touch yeah. her even when she's stopping him and she has like trauma from it. And it's just sort of like brushed past like that wasn't really his concern. He was just trying to get laid. And it's like, yeah, he's mm-hmm. like, I hope that they wouldn't make this movie this way now. Yeah. What I and what I most enjoy about that scene where she recaps to him, like when he does reconnect with her and she recaps to him that like that led to like even sort of graver sexual encounters for her mm-hmm. that you know, she says it wasn't technically rape, but it might, may as well have been or something along the lines with someone who followed. It's so rough, obviously, but then it's just like a, the most beautiful illustration of exactly how self-centered he is because mm-hmm. his takeaway from that is, oh, it wasn't me. <sighs> And yeah. it's like, no, it was you, you idiot. It's like, you're just like, it's the most glaring illustration of where he's at in the middle of the movie. Yeah, totally. And it is like, there, there is something powerful in watching that like teenage flashback scene. It is so matter of fact, and I absorbed it so matter of factly as a 12 year old girl of like, you mm. know, it's your responsibility. Like you and the the movie explains it in a way that's almost self-aware it's like teenage girls' breasts are the Falklands and guys are Great Britain. They're <laughs> like, you know that that property like down near the South Pole and South America? That's ours. And you're like, why the fuck would it be ours? And they're like, it is. And then it's like your job to like defend the Falklands from the Royal Navy or whatever. And it's just like taken as an accepted truth that it's like, yeah, I guess guys are just going to want to grab you and just go for it. And you have to keep pushing them away and pushing them away and then they'll break up with you. Yeah. And this idea that like there's no alternative to that and that you would never be like, could I touch your boob? You know, that that's like possible. Yeah. Feels so feels eons away. 
I think it only strike this only strikes me because we just watched City Slickers and City City Slickers reminded me of all of the Billy Crystal romantic comedies, mm-hmm. and it really struck me this time about like how he just opened like his first sexual encounters he just refers to women as they mm-hmm. as them mm-hmm. right like as like on the other side and like that was a trope in so many of these kinds of movies where it's like I the rational man and then over there mm-hmm. is or like these to your point like this thing that needs to be conquered in one way or another that I couldn't possibly understand and I didn't realize how the movie stayed the same age you know particular groups collectively grew a bit more but it it's jarring to hear that language it's jarring to hear how it's framed where like he does not consider the humanity of a woman until the last 10 minutes of the movie Mm -hmm. yeah I it took me so long when I was a teenager to like feel not super anxious about having sex with men and I often credit like the American Pie movies with putting the thoughts in my head that made that difficult for me but movies like this also do it in kind of a Mm -hmm. a, you know more low-key way where the idea is like guys really only want one thing even if they're pretending to want something else they don't really and like that made it really hard for me to relax in bed with guys (laughs) and like as much as I love this movie like yeah that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. Well, and also like this way of seeing your own body where it's like your Fort Knox and it's like, which burglar do you like allow to breach the facility first? And then you'll theoretically have nothing because like all of the language around it is framed as if there's this like great prize to be won and that like you're going to wake up like with all of your assets gone. Mm-hmm. And that's just like a very st- it's an incredibly stressful way to walk around the world. Yes. So, yeah, we're kind of like walking around Chicago with him, hearing him process his breakup and like harass his ex, Laura, a bunch after she moves in with Tim Robbins, who <laughs> listens to world music and has a ponytail, <laughs> uh, which is terrible, apparently. And <laughs> and we also, of course, get to meet the two guys at Rob's record store. I feel like so much of this movie is just like knowing how to give the viewer a place they want to be in. Mm-hmm. These two people are, of course, Jack Black, who enters this movie kind of flinging the door open as he also entered the 2000s. He just showed up right on time. He was like, here I am. I'm Jack Black. They're saying it's the Willennium, but it's actually the Jack Black Ennium. <laughs> so that's Barry. And then there's Dick, who also works at the store and is played by a whole other person. But he's just Moby. It's just Moby. <laughs> Like, how is this not Moby? <laughs> he's more charming, I think. I think yeah. the differentiator is he's charming. Yeah, These are the two best characters in the movie. They are just so entertaining to watch because Jack Black is yes. Jack Black. And then Todd Luizzo is like the shyest, most awkward man on earth. And yeah. it's so funny seeing them together and having them be the foils for Rob and for each other and being his sort of shoulder angels the whole movie. And yeah. I love them so much. Yes. I love how often Dick is right. He's just quietly <laughs> correct. And then and then Jack Black is just loudly wrong. And I really love that dynamic. It's a little bit of like Donnie Walter and dude energy from the Big Lebowski. <laughs> yes, that's so true. God. And so it ends basically with uh, Rob and Laura getting back together because this was another important thing I learned about relationships 
when somebody dies, you just get back together. So Laura's <laughs> dad dies. So she's like, Rob, I'm tired of trying to break up with you. Let's just be together. Which also is like the language around teenage sex in this movie, where it's like relationships are something you can try and get out of. But if a guy won't stop following you around, then like you just have to give up, which is a really great message. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. At some point you'll be emotionally tired enough and he'll be consistent enough and then the stars will align. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of like that part because I do sort of get it on one level. Like I get that when you're grieving, you might want to go back to something familiar. But the thing is, like, in order for me to buy Mm -hmm. that, that that she would do that and that that would be an okay thing for her to do. Like, I would need for them to have a conversation about, like, what he did wrong (laughs) in the first place and how he's going to fix it and, like, what the plan is. And basically it just seems like the reason she thinks he's okay to get back together with is that he's taken like one small step toward becoming a more fully actualized human in starting to make and sell records of his own rather than just criticize other people's records and it's like Hmm. I don't know I don't think that that is enough but you do you Laura like his personal growth is like tiny to nil and yet he's John Cusack and like well we'll get into the particular charms of John Cusack as we unpack this whole thing but it is like he was a very important part of the I don't know let's say like 1985 through what was his last like zeitgeisty moment was it this it might have been this (laughs) this was the biggest yeah I think this was peak Cusack that's a 15 year run that's a hell of a run (laughs) it's a it's a great run and then he also had must love dogs and then oh, since yeah. then, he's been in just the weirdest movies that he apparently can find. And I don't know what's going on with him. And I honestly have concerns. But OK, so, yeah, we have our pals at the record store. Rob and Laura get back together and everything is perfect. And then he meets Natalie Wood's daughter, oh. who's like the fantasy dream girl. I didn't know that that was Natalie Wood's daughter. Huh? Yeah. Very important thing well maybe i'm wrong but i i'm i'm pretty sure it is we're ha- we're having our own dick and berry moment right now it's so nice which one is natalie wood's daughter the like hot music reporter who comes in and is like oh, hi i really want to know what your top 5 records are the very thing you've been talking about for this whole movie and i think that he's like he notices himself sort of falling into his old pattern where it's like his big realization i feel like is that his relationships don't progress because like he keeps wanting the fantasy and not the real thing, which is like more fulfilling, but you have to put work in and grow. And so he's like, I'm not going to fuck up again like I always do. I'm going to commit to Laura and propose marriage and then she'll be like, what? No. And then I'll be like, OK, but I tried. And then <laughs> I'll produce this record by these kids who shoplift from my store because I think they're really great and I'm going to try and grow past being a loser who only has my own business. And then kind of the finale of this movie is that two things. Jack Black's band performs at the shoplifting kids record release event and he's great and everyone's like Jack Black is so great and that's so important. And also uh, Dick gets together with Sarah Gilbert which we love. And then Rob decides to make a mixtape for Laura based on things he thinks that she would like. And then we end with Stevie Wonder, which is a nice kind of reversal of Barry yelling at a dad for trying to buy his daughter a Stevie Wonder 
album. <laughs> I believe when I fall in love this time, it will be forever. The end. It's the, the year 2000. Things can only go up from here. It will only get better. <laughs> I feel like it's so bleak that his lesson at the end of the movie is like, maybe I should try to make the person I'm dating happy instead of just doing what makes me happy. It's, it's like you're in your 30s and you're yeah. learning this. As bleak is the realization that happened right immediately before that is maybe the person I'm dating is a person. <laughs> yeah. So it's got a lot of important messages. And like, and I feel like this movie was huge. What? So Kate, tell us about your relationship with it. Yeah, sure. So this movie came out when I was eight, but I think I didn't see it until I was about 12 as well. And um, my mom was an entertainment reporter for most of my childhood and teen years, like uh, at a TV station. And then she was the editor of a movie magazine. So she would get like a lot of free DVDs and stuff. And I remember this being one of the ones in her collection where she just like pulled it out one night and it was like, we should watch this. And I loved it so much. It was I think that like you said, Sarah, like it really kicked me off on a trajectory of like being into a certain type of guy and like I just I really go for like a charming, charismatic nerd. Like that's really still kind of my thing. And mm -hmm. I think that Cusack like really embodies that. Definitely more misanthropic than I would typically <laughs> be into. But I must have seen it like, I don't know, 30 times or something. I've seen this movie so many times. I considered it my favorite movie for a long time, which I, which I think is partially because like it felt like a cool movie to say it was my favorite movie, like especially as a woman, I think. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, upon rewatching it, like there's so much about it that I still really, really love. Like it still makes me laugh a lot. It still warms my heart. I still like kind of root for Rob and Laura, but like Rob is such a dipshit. Like he's just, he knows he's a dipshit <laughs> and like everybody around him knows he's a dipshit, but it's like, I don't know. I still root for him just because like Cusack is so mm -hmm. charming. It's very annoying. On one hand, I'm kind of like, yeah, like the only growth is that he grows this like tiny bit, but also like th he, that's what humans do, yeah. <laughs> you know, like humans yeah, but are. We've been watching him in flashbacks for 20 years and <laughs> there haven't been any bits in that time. <laughs> no, no. I mean, he's been shitty for two decades, but like we leave this assuming that either he keeps growing or this is the most he grows. And I don't know which way, <laughs> which way it goes. But I, I was surprised at watching this movie, like how much I didn't like this person sort of thoroughly, how perplexed I was that Laura is at all interested in ever talking to him again, based on sort of how things have, have gone. But like, she's kind of like as persistent of engaging as he is person. No, well, not as persistent because he's actually stalking her to some point. But when I saw this, when I was 17, I was like, these are like cool guys with cool taste. That's mm -hmm. like all my only takeaway. And in this, I was like, Oh, I'm kind of surprised that this movie had the self-awareness to acknowledge that this guy kind of sucks. Like, <laughs> this guy, and I just missed it. Cause I was seeing it through the lens of like, I want to know everything about every record at the record store. And then like watching, it, I was like, Oh, like this guy's like not a hero. <laughs> yeah. I, I said to my mom that I was rewatching this movie to talk about it on podcast. And I was like, it's such an interesting portrait of like, uh, you know, the grieving process after a breakup. And my mom was like, oh, I didn't remember that it was about that. I just remember the record store. And I was like, yeah, I feel like I probably like probably a lot of people felt that way about it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. We need more record store movies. I think that like truly something audiences want, or at least that I want, and the popularity of this movie supports this, is like a movie that lets us be in places where we want to be. Mm -hmm. Yes. This is a movie where cell phones don't exist. 
I think. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think we get any cell phone action. And if we do, it's like never important to the plot. And I feel like 2005 or so was when it started to feel weird to have movies where cell phones didn't like turn up as something somebody could use. Mm -hmm. You know, this is based on a book that I think came out in like the early 90s because the movie they're talking about seeing in the like Evil Dead 2 conversation in this, I think is Reservoir Dogs. And I think it was because it was like out at the time that this is set. Because like men men are going to continue to need a hand for a while now. And I think like one of the problems (laughs) with the way culture is organized today is that like, where are they going to get it? Because Mm -hmm. like in the midst of this breakup, Rob is like, He's at work every day and he has like his two friends who he has a lot of time to talk to and he doesn't really like or respect them. But like he secretly kind of does. And he has like he has lunch with Joan Cusack like he's communicating with a woman who he like listens to and who actually, you know, does help him to do the right thing to get back together with Laura. And like he and Laura are communicating throughout this breakup, even as he continues to be scary and it just it feels like the and there's you know he's like calling all these exes in a way where like I feel like it's actually like quite hard to like reach out and be like hey I want to talk about what happened or like let's have dinner or whatever and like so that there's like so much human contact and interaction happening in this movie that I feel like is the kind of thing that it's like so much harder to write like dick stops by his house unannounced he does a pop in so that rob can tell him about his record (laughs) thing and like it would be so much harder story-wise i think to write these kind of things happening today and i think characters and also real people like are able to sink so much deeper into despair because they are less likely to have lunch with joan cusack metaphorically this is like a hangout movie, which I yeah. I love a hangout movie. And like, I think like to make hangout movies now, you have to make them period films because <laughs> you need to like go pre cell phone. Because people don't hang out anymore. It's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because like Rob, Rob would get into like an incel group on um, Reddit. Yes. Rob would just like d- go on Reddit and decompensate, you know, get a flashlight <laughs> and just like give up. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with flashlights, but you know, sorry, go on. It's true, it's true. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. When he has that Evil Dead 2 conversation with Jack Black, where basically like he's trying to find out if Jack Black thinks that Laura's going to sleep with her new boyfriend based on she said, like, I haven't slept with him yet. But Rob will not just ask his friend, what do you think about this? Do you think she's going to sleep with him? What, are the, what is the deal? He has to couch it in this language of like, if I said I hadn't seen Evil Dead 2 yet, what would you think I meant by that? Would you think that I really wanted to go see it? And it's like, why can he not just talk to his bros about like what he's going through? Like, it's, it's really wild how like, yeah, Laura and uh, the Joan Cusack character are the only people really in this movie who he can talk to about real emotions. And uh, Lisa Bonet, who is a super hot singer-songwriter who he hooks up with. And it's like he thinks he can only talk to women about his feelings about women. And it also seems like he thinks that talking about his heartbreak and desire for women and stuff is something that women will find attractive and interesting about him, which is like sort of true. It sort of works. But like, why can't he talk to his guy friends about this stuff? It's kind of sad. 
it never occurred to me before, but like Rob actually doesn't, in a sense, have male friends, which might be one of the best things about <laughs> him. Like, because he has the two record store guys who do work for him and who he like openly disrespects. <laughs> and then he has no male friends. His best friend is a woman we know to be his sister <laughs> in real life, um, basically. And his girlfriend and then really the audience like we are his best friend in a in a fascinating mm-hmm. way well D- dick tries remember at the beginning like dick tries yeah. to talk to him and he's like do you want to like talk about it or whatever and, <laughs> and it obviously doesn't go anywhere i i would make the argument though that even the women in rob's life i don't think that they're his friend i i think they're his friends i don't think no. he's a yeah. friend to them true. That's because true. he's going to them to like launder his narrative like he's not going yeah. to go like what happened in your like <laughs> how was your day what impact did i have on your life yeah totally yeah. like not interesting at all like in in that that argument he has with joan cusack at the funeral mm. is or at the wait whatever i don't i still don't understand funeral terminology despite how many i've been through <laughs> the reception of the funeral yeah at the at the party they have uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of where he starts to realize based on like her responses to the fact that he's insisting on making this event that's very much about laura about mm-hmm. him mm-hmm. and like it's like kind of the most egregious he is in that engagement and this is where he starts to see it a bit but like i don't think he knows and this is like where the internet can be scary for people who get on it is like if your mm. if your interest is only you it can become very very easy to find loops that suggests to you that all of reality is only about you. And mm-hmm. so it, it is nice yeah. that he has all these like human interveners around him because he desperately needs it, <laughs> you know, God, but people can just now hide from any sort of interaction, um, you know, which I would argue kind of like he, you know, he's so interestingly manipulative, like his mm-hmm. engagement with Lisa, with Lisa Bonet is like, you know, I'm going to talk about this stuff, but I'm not going to talk about it in a way where it's like, I'm going to like reveal my hand or like where I'm at. I'm going to talk about it as bait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <what>? mm-hmm. <laughs> but I've also done that. And yeah. I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't love it. Well, he's trying to get her to have sex with him. He's not trying to like have a heart to heart about how he could actually grow as a person. It's not, right. he hasn't been scolded by Joan Cusack at a funeral yet. He doesn't want to do that. Yeah. And she, and she, to her credit, like she wants to fuck. So that's cool. Yeah. If any of us had the opportunity to have sex with Lisa Bonet and she seemed interested, like you're just going to do hundred percent. Yeah. You're just going to be your most charming self, you know? <laughs> And that's fine. I also love how Lisa Bonet is of zero importance to the plot because blazes through this movie like a perfect comet. Absolutely. She's so hot in this movie. She's it's perfect. too much. I always wish that she it's would come back much. again. Like, because doesn't it kind of make more sense for Rob to end up with her? Like, it just sort of seems like they get each other more and like the type of relationship mm. that he is willing and able to provide is something that she would be open to. And Laura is just like amazing she's so smart she's so mm-hmm. like capable and ambitious and i think that she kind of more wants to be with someone like tim robbins like someone who is i don't even know the adjectives i'm looking for here but you know what i mean like it just feels like rob wants to end up with someone who has a little bit more of a dirtbag vibe than than laura <laughs> yeah i've i mean i've been a person who spent at least a decade talking about doing things and not doing anything so like i i absolutely am familiar with this I'm familiar with this character and I'm familiar with this character's like wants and needs and sort of like what needs they delude themselves into believing. Um, but like I kind of on the other end of that, I think that like all that Laura wants and is just 
the person who she's interested in to try literally one thing (laughs) or to Mm -hmm. acknowledge and Mm -hmm. then to like sort of get out of that whatever cycle he's in to not be able to see that to to everyone's point so far he owns a record store like he's not not doing a thing but he for some reason Mm -hmm. is under the illusion that he is incapable of like any action beyond what he's kind of fallen into and you know it's it's totally understandable like that people go through like long stretches of whatever and like they have to work through shit all that stuff but like if you're with someone who for years starts defining themselves by like inaction that can be stifling and you can accidentally Mm -hmm. end up fucking Tim Robbins character in this movie (laughs) or not fucking him. I guess. I don't know. (laughs) I also, I think it is an iconic line read when in a scene in the record store, Rob is like, Laura's dad died and Jack Black is eating a burrito and he's like, Oh, drag. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny. But then it's, it's so cute that he immediately like reads on Rob's face that he fucked up the tone of his response. And so he proposes making this like tribute <laughs> list where they talk about the five top songs about death, like a Laura's dad tribute yes. list. Like it's actually such a cute moment of like, this is how these bros yeah. are able to connect with each other on an emotional level. And like yes. they can't go much <laughs> deeper than this, but this is like meaningful to them. And it's kind of cute. It's kind of wholesome. And it's the only time that Jack Black seeds to mm-hmm. Dick they're having such an important moment you know yeah. remembering Laura's dad <laughs> and that like that when when Dick uh suggests the wreck of him and Fitzgerald Jack Black is like I wish I'd thought of that and that's like <laughs> the know. only time he's generous yeah. to him I like when he's singing and he says angina's tough like he knows that Laura's dad died of angina it, just, it gets me every time <laughs> I like that Jack Black trying to be sensitive is just like him dialing his personality up to an even higher frequency, which then drives everyone insane. But you know that he's trying. What do you two think of Rob's assertion that when it comes to like what makes you get along with someone well in a relationship level, it matters more what you like than what you are like, like in terms of media preferences? I don't know. I think that's kind of nuts because it's like, because look at something like Game of Thrones, which theoretically everyone with a pulse was into, you know, where are you going to get with that? (laughs) Like every, most people can agree that Fleetwood Mac is great because they're great. You know, what do you do from there? Yeah. I think if it matters to you, like it's okay that it matters to you. And obviously it matters to these guys, but like if I only dated people who liked all the same shit that I like, like I just don't think I would tend to get along with them on a, personality level and that shit's much more important to me it just comes up more often in my life anyway well I think like a big thing that we've talked about here so much is that we if not in gut definitely in philosophy are are kind of against like guilty pleasures like Mm, I think mm. that like by like talking about stuff in that way you end up inadvertently shutting off parts of yourself and accessing yourself if like you are refusing to relate to things that are not cool because you know just and that's your entire reason yeah. for doing it. So like I feel like that potentially leads like h- having a dogmatic view of the kinds of things that you could and should enjoy leads to a lot of like stunting behavior at least with regard to like you know your relationship with yourself let alone your relationship with other people. And like I'll take someone who likes I I know I am friends with people who I believe have taste that 
is not my taste. <laughs> Very not my taste, but are the, you know, kindest and loveliest people that I can actually have a relationship yeah. with. And I know many people who love the same things that I do, and it's difficult to sort of engage them in one way or another. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's for me, like, I think what we're hearing from him and seeing from him and seeing from his friends is that taste is easier to cultivate than action. Mm-hmm. 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 Shit. Too real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, I feel like there's kind of a spectrum of why we care about taste. And on the one side, it's like Hannibal Lecter was the best at choosing wine. And on the other end of that, it's like the joy that I feel when I watch an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark with Chelsea and Miranda, where you're like, oh, this is like a way of connecting because this is a this like weird sort of fever dream of a memory from our childhoods and also this thing of like shared emotional connection and sort of in this case feeling shaped by something and then using media as a way to connect with people and to or to feel part of a community or at least to kind of have a conversation about what's important to you from that and why or even just to like vibe you know and just be like ah that part was great you know so it's I don't know it's like taste at its worst we use to like separate ourselves into categories and avoid connection and at its best we use it to create connection or we just like you know don't weaponize it against people Mm -hmm. yeah I think one of the things I've enjoyed about growing up is I feel like I no longer feel as much pressure to like make people in my life understand what I love about certain pieces of art like and try to get them to join me in that and I think that the internet helps with this because if you want somebody to nerd out about something with you can find them in two seconds Um, but (laughs) I'm much more into just like enjoying a piece of art a lot by myself especially because like I've had experiences of like trying to get people in my life into certain things and having them not like them and having it like taint the experience for me or like getting into arguments with people like I have a friend who uh, thinks that the whole second act of Into the Woods is like completely unnecessary and should have been cut and like I love this friend, mm. but like every time I get into this discussion with him, I get so angry and I'm like, we should just watch Into the Woods separately. Like, I don't even want to get into this. With you. <laughs> oh, my God. Kate, what scenes stick out for you as as ones that, you know, having watched this 30 times, you think just like work exceptionally well? I really like all the stuff with Catherine Zeta-Jones, who we haven't even touched on yet. Mm. She's one of the ex-girlfriends. She's someone he dated in college, Charlie Nicholson. (laughs) And I really, really love the way that they so perfectly depict like how she appears in his memory as this like super hot, untouchable, gorgeous, out of his league woman. And then he reconnects with her and goes to this dinner party she's hosting. And he realizes she's annoying. She's aggravating. He disagrees with her on stuff. He doesn't really enjoy spending time with her. And I love love that because that's just so real that's just a thing that has happened to me so many times and I mean it sort of happened to me with this movie right like (laughs) you remember a thing a certain way and and you think about it for sometimes decades and then it turns out that it's just not the way you remembered it and the question is kind of like should I have just left it alone and you know just had the fond memories or was it good to kind of ruin it for myself and also I think Catherine Zeta-Jones is brilliant in this part like she plays both sides of that so so well she can be so charming and likable and then you also see how she's so annoying and I love her she's Mm -hmm. she's so hot and great in this movie (laughs) I think the side characters are so important to this and we also have Lily Taylor Mm. as Mm. one of the exes there's like it feels like a say anything sequel (laughs) 
like without the side characters and the sort of journey of it, this movie could be like a perfectly competent late 90s type rom-com but it feels like it's the secondary characters and the sort of world of it that make it really work and make it such a specific movie and like so I don't know like it just feels good to watch like it feels good to be inside of Mm -hmm. that's so well said like that that is what works so well here is that like you have in works well in like movies that are dealing with some romantic strife is like there needs to be a more than just the two sort of primary characters in the movie Mm -hmm. another uh another scene I really like from High Fidelity is the like really violent montage of like Oh my God. Fantasies he's having about (laughs) doing various horrible things to Tim Robbins' character. It just made me think about how, like, this movie, you know, it was adapted from a novel, and I think that that it can be really hard to do. And I know that John Cusack kind of like gently pushed back against all of the sort of like monologues to the camera that they were having him do that were like directly Mm -hmm. lifted from the book. But like, I think that this movie actually works so well as an example of like showing interiority and showing a character's thought process uh, in a way that doesn't feel to me anyway like too heavy-handed and like the the sequence of violent fantasies is such a good example because it just tells us everything we need to know about like where his head's at as far as this character like he wants his friend to hit this guy in the head with a with a phone or an air conditioner it's it's i don't normally like violence in movies all that much but it's a really really funny sequence it's okay when jack black does it (laughs) yeah yeah totally all of his action is like to me like the punchline of that scene is he does nothing like he imagines all doing all of this you know like this I get it, like which is like this great distilled metaphor for the whole movie <laughs> which is like this guy whose only actions are compulsive and are like you know essentially like habit energy stuff and then like in the last six minutes <laughs> he's like I'm gonna do something that my my partner tricked me into doing <laughs> yep yeah, I lo- when he when Tim Robbins gets hit in the mouth and his teeth come out as chiclets, it is so perfect. <laughs> and Dick is the one that kills him. So funny. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell Moby has a lot of pent up rage. Well, speaking of Moby, the thing that makes me realize how much this movie was written by Nick Hornsby, presumably in the UK in the early aughts, is how often the genre trip hop comes up in a movie that came out in the 2000. 2000. I was like, they're talking about trip hop a lot. And then I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Okay, so like, all right, there are three things that I want to make sure that we cover. And the first two are John Cusack... What is he? Like for people who like what imagine someone who has not even a mental image of John Cusack, no sense of him at all. Like how do we begin to describe him? And let's start with that, I think. I think it's important. I feel like we've done this before in a previous John Cusack centric episode, but I can we'll we'll never get there a hundred percent, so it's worth trying again. He's to me, he's sort of the proto like hipster sad boy. He's also the voice of Dimitri in the Anastasia cartoon movie, <laughs> which I think a lot of people sure have is. seen. Like, he has this great voice that's sort of like, I don't know, I, I always get sort of like charming con man vibes from his voice because of that movie. <laughs> like, he's just so good in that part. But yeah, he's got like dark hair, dark eyes. He's He just has this sort of perpetual cute sad boy thing going on, which I, for some reason, am, am cursed to find very appealing. And he he doesn't look like a typical handsome 
leading man, although he is very handsome. I don't know. Hard to explain the charm of John Cusack. <laughs> He's like one prong of the kind of Gen X boy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like highly, highly sensitive to a fault in various directions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> would you agree that another, would you concur that another prong of the Gen X boy is Ethan Hawke and Reality Bites? Yes, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> that the worst of the worst. Definitely, yes. Yeah, e- Ethan Hawke and Reality Bites, who like, in my opinion, deserves to go straight to hell. <laughs> and... It is like it feels like the '90s, like that kind of character got so much leeway in '90s movies and culture, because it felt like we were still like just starting to poke our heads out from the era of like men don't have feelings, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and also like it's gay to drink bottled water, you know. <laughs> we had just invented feelings for men and bottled water. <laughs> And now it's like, I don't know. I feel like maybe our standards are like when you start asking for something, it gradually becomes easier to ask for more and more specific things. And that like, yeah, to me, the Cusack appeal is like, it's so much the voice. He's just so cute. You just want to squeeze him. You just want to (laughs) like lie on top of him, you know, like he's an otter and you're his clam. (laughs) That's what I want. (laughs) <laughs> I just want to make mention of a couple other Gen X boys in different directions. We have Mook, yeah. Mookie from Do the Right Thing. That's a Gen mm-hmm. X boy. And then Michael Rappaport in Literally Anything, <laughs> which is just loud guy with opinions. I did not see Michael Rappaport coming. <laughs> loud guy with opinions and maybe a little heart revealed somewhere down the line. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. And the things that we're moving towards, I feel like... You know, I don't know. I feel good about how culture has changed since high fidelity. And I feel and then the another thing I'm curious about is like, what is Rob's like main flaw and like what would growth look like for him past the end of this movie? And what are our dreams for him? Yeah, I think his main flaw is that he is self-absorbed to a fault and it leads to him making a whole bunch of choices that just don't take into account how anybody else will feel about them. We see it most clearly, I think, in that funeral scene where he truly thinks that people talking about how Laura is having a hard time means that they're talking about how things ended between him and Laura, which it sort of does, but sort of doesn't. And I think that the thing he most needs is to just train it into himself to consciously like every single day go like, how is this affecting the people around me? How can I do better for the people around me? And like, I've seen people in my life try to start doing this. Like it definitely doesn't seem easy at the beginning when you're super not used to it. But like, I think you can get into the habit of it, even if it doesn't come very naturally to you. And I also think that the situation that we see in the movie of like this super painful breakup can be the kind of wake up call that can make somebody want to make those changes. I don't know that I really buy that Rob will do that. Like he just seems so complacent and so stuck in his ways. But I hope and, and you know, wish that he would focus on making Laura happy because like she's made it pretty clear what she needs from him and and she deserves that and like realistically I think if this was real life she would probably be breaking up with him again in like six months like I just don't think anything's really gonna mm-hmm. change but who knows yeah and it is like I've had so many relationships where I'm like why did those last two years happen and I'm like well you had to be sure yeah 
Yeah. And with Rob, I feel like, you know what my what I kind of think is that like, I think Rob believes based on the fact that he lives, you know, barely out of the 1900s, that (laughs) this is what it feels like to be a sensitive boy. And I think he's just very depressed. And this is like all this whole story is like, well, that's how I see things when I'm pretty depressed. I think you're pretty depressed. And I also think that like when you're depressed, it makes you pretty self-centered because it's like, you know, you just like wake up and you're like, where am I going to get my like little pellets of will to live today? They're going to be tough to find or like, you know, that like the kind of joy that like relationships and other people's happiness bring you is like at least kind of muted by all the insulation foam you're in potentially. Mm-hmm. And I think I just I think Rob's mental health journey is ahead of him. And I do feel like truly that this is like one of the things that has made growth you know, theoretically more possible, at least if you can access those resources, which is very difficult in this country, but to like, but he owns a record store. So I think he can do it. It's just like to actually (laughs) realize that like life doesn't have to feel the way that it does. And you don't, you know, if you were doing better, you would have a lot more to offer the people you care about. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up because like, yeah, I think that mental health is like so not a conversation within the movie that it's really easy to forget that like, (laughs) yeah, that probably is exactly what's going on because yeah, when you're depressed, when you're anxious, it is easy to think everything is about you because the voices in your head are constantly being like, you're the worst. Everybody in your life hates you. You're causing yeah. problems for everybody in your life. And everything does feel like it's about you because you're like, well, I'm the greatest problem in every situation I'm in. So how could this not all right. be about me when you really think about it? Yeah, I'm the common denominator in everything falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. God. Yeah, I, it's it's so interesting. Like, I think that there is that for sure. But I also think Rob has given himself to narcissistic tendencies for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do think like there's a chance he's in the middle of a thing, particularly triggered by this situation with the breakup and then with sort of like having to look at himself, et cetera. But like we also know he has no skills for doing that at all. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it is clear that he doesn't have skills for doing that, has not had skills, refers constantly, like refers at least, not constantly, but refers at least once to this having been gone on since he was 14. And he's talking about his occupation with women but his occupation with women looks a very particular way a little a one-sided way so yeah I mean I do I think that like all of those things are true when like you're in a particular state it's hard to see outside of yourself but I also think that like maybe like culturally for sure and definitely like personally Rob does not until the last part of this movie seem accustomed to thinking about anyone outside of himself Mm -hmm. and what I do think works about the movie is like, that's all we get for growth. Like it would be hard to believe if we did like whatever, like a year flash forward to think about sort of all the stuff he's done since like people usually grow one step at a time. Yeah. (laughs) And then, Mm -hmm. you know, not to be discouraging, you take that step and it's, you often take a step and a half back before you take two steps forward. Like it is a messy process. It's not linear. It's often totally unmonumental until you look back and and accumulate five years of growth in order to understand kind of like what the trajectory has looked like. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I do, I do think like, you know, this is before we were talking. I mean, obviously like therapy was a thing, but this is before we would talk about the average person's mental health journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't part of the conversation. So yes, there is a lot of that going on as well. 
Yeah, and he's not going to be reading like gay zines, which is where he would be reading about it. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, that's where he would get it. That's where he'd get the info. (laughs) Yeah, and I do. I feel like the I don't know that I. It is so important to depict in movies that growth happens in tiny little increments. And I feel like the question here is like, will Rob continue to like strive for self-awareness and have like little increments through his life? Or will he at some point turn back inward and not really be able to turn out again, you know? And really the key thing is just that like growth is like possible for everyone, much less linearly, but I think in the end more meaningfully than we generally feel. Um, But that Mm. it also isn't women's jobs to facilitate that. Yeah. And I'll say that again because it's so important. Men can grow and will and have to, but they, it is not the job of their female romantic partners to give them a carcass to feast on in order to be able to do that. It's not your job. Yeah. I, I once dated a man who I found out a few dates in did not believe in the concepts of male privilege or white privilege. Oh, no. And, oh. and I had a conversation with several friends where I was like, what do I want to do here? Because like part of my ethic is like I don't want to just let people like that go unchallenged. And I do like him, mm-hmm. the other parts of him. And all my female friends were like, dump his ass. And my one male mm-hmm. friend who I asked about it was like, well, I don't know. Like, I did learn a lot about feminism from women who explained it mm-hmm. to me. And I, I ultimately thought about it and was like, I think this is above my pay grade. Like, I don't think this is my job. So I broke up with him and I'm really glad I did. I feel like the question is like, can you come with someone who you know believes those things? Which is a very personal matter. Like some people can and some people can't, I think. Yeah, I think that I did struggle with that after that realization. And that's definitely a factor because you just can't put that back in the box, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And it is like and our relationships and our communities are so important in helping us to grow. And like we need whatever energy and time people can offer to us and I am often like I'm look there's like a million things that I am stupid about and started off stupider about than I am now and I'm growing incrementally and that's like we all have to grow incrementally in our own ways and again that's kind of like what one of the things that makes this movie feel like it's offering us a chance to see something sustainable where it's like he has to go off and and really, I don't know. And like his him talking to the audience feels like some degree of introspection mm-hmm. and like that that's part of it. And it's really like, is this movie not kind of a precursor to Fleabag? <laughs> I was way. thinking that, too. It had a sort of Fleabag vibe to it. And I like that about it. It's like he's journaling or something. So the question of like, will he keep progressing? I think like, you know, I've known many people who are self-absorbed and start doing a bit of work in order to get out of the way of their self and they make progress. And I know plenty of people who I love who have been self-absorbed and can't seemingly can't or are unwilling or do a little bit of work and then crash and then use that as an excuse to not do any more work or whatever. Mm-hmm. And knowing the former and knowing how emotionally destructive that can be to have those people in your life and just want there to be more progress than it seems like there's capable of. It makes me, you know, as a defense, it makes me want to be like, no one is capable because it like it's like a way of shielding yourself from like harm that comes from when you when you see someone mm. you love like want to do the work but they're unable to do it. But the mm. optimistic side of me says that 
you know, which I, I try to defer to because the other side is usually defined by scars, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> wants to believe that Rob keeps making some progress and sees some of the fruit of what happens when he relents to his most based I- instincts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess I feel like, God, I did not think that our conversation about high fidelity would go in this direction, but I'm not surprised either. <laughs> like when I get emotional about like, like feeling triggered by stuff and feeling like, ah, this is too hard and like feelings hurt too much. And I'm just, I should just retreat. It's like, you can see the paths your life could take if you like stay open and are able to like be trusting and keep growing and doing the like make a mixtape for Laura thing. Or you can see how it's going to go if you turn inward and like refuse and just kind of like keep yourself walled off you know, and everything depends on the resources available to us. And I don't even know if I believe in free will, but like if we are, then like we really create our own realities in those moments, depending on like where we stay in that time. And then like what enables us to be on track that allows us to like, you know, pursue relationships and intimacy. But I think if things go well for him, I feel like he's running a music venue and he's like helping, helping the kids. Mm-hmm. The kit it's an all ages venue, so he has been accused of like, you know, queuing on Pizzagate stuff and that's been <laughs> tough, but he's gotten through it. <laughs> and he's given some Rye interviews and he's got a podcast, which is the perfect outlet for him. He yes. for sure has a podcast. <laughs> Rob has a podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I have I have one more thing I wanted to cover. Yeah, which is Kate, like having had this movie be so important to you, you know at a formative age and returning to it now like what's that experience like generally because it is like I also really first bonded with it at exactly the same age and it is like so fascinating to like have those bookends I think yeah it was really strange to revisit it at this particular moment in my life because I've just wrapped up like a three-year process of doing trauma therapy to work on Mm. some pretty deep emotional shit and a big thing that I've been learning is like one of the central lessons of growing up, I think for a lot of people, which is like, yeah, it can feel good to just like retreat into your emotions and be sort of like self-righteous or emotionally reactive or just immature and just like give in to what your emotions Mm -hmm. are telling you to do. But like the grown up thing to do is like learn how to regulate your emotions as best you can (laughs) and like make Mm -hmm. the more adult and more thoughtful decision, even though like sometimes that sucks. Like sometimes it's so annoying to do that. Hate having to do that so frustrating you just want to throw a tantrum and I think when I look at Rob now I feel like oh that's like the worst version or one of the worst versions of like how things have gone for me when I have just felt unable or unwilling to step up to the plate as an adult and regulate my emotions and like take responsibility and do something about it if I'm sad or angry or whatever you know, he seemed so grown up to me when I first saw this movie. He seemed like an adult who, like, not emotionally had his shit together, but, like, in some other ways had his shit together. And now I look at it and I'm like, whoa, like, I'm so light years ahead of this man. <laughs> like, that makes me feel good. And I don't know. It's just really interesting to have had that trajectory of growth alongside a movie and see mm. how completely differently it lands for me now. Do you think Rob would benefit from going through that same therapy? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably, but I don't I don't think at this point that he's ready to do it. And I think part of it is yeah. like he looks up to all these musicians so much and there is an attitude in music and in art generally, or at least there was back then, of like 
pain and suffering is just like inherent to the human experience and especially to the human experience of someone with sort of an artistic temperament. And I so I, I think mm. he's sort of like glamorizing that state of being rather than wanting to think about mm. like, is there anything I can do about this? And also, could this be mental health related? And should I try to fix it? Yeah. But if you can regulate your emotions and you do regulate your emotions, you'll stop being an artist. So, like, <laughs> so I've heard, yeah. yeah. Please. Yeah. Please. Please. Anyway. No, it's so important that all artists stab their wives at some point. You're not a real artist if you don't stab your wife. Or at least throw a knife in her general direction. Or just, or just become impossible to be around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, Harold Ramis was supposed to play a father in this movie, but we got cut out, I think. Really? Who's dad? I think he plays Rob's dad. Oh, really? Yeah. Who, in your view, is the daddy? Kate, do you want to kick us off? High fidelity expert? I think Lisa Bonet might be the daddy. Beautiful. Like, she's just, she's got that energy. I don't know. I I think that the dads in this movie I mean one of them dies one of them was cut out none of the men have the emotional maturity to be daddy I think I think it has to be Lisa Bonet (laughs) that's wonderful I god I don't even know I think I'm gonna go and I hope Sarah I'm not taking yours I'm gonna Mm. say and I imagine I might be because of your love but I'm gonna say Joan Cusack Mm. and the reason I'm saying Joan Cusack is she (laughs) She cuts to the chase and just walks in and calls Rob a fucking asshole. Such a great line read. (laughs) I think he needs to hear, to be honest. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. He is a fucking asshole. And she is the one, oh my God, the scene where it's at the funeral and he says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to apologize my whole life. And she's like, just once would be nice. (laughs) Just the once Mm -hmm. would do. It's so good. Oh my God. So good. Her lines in this are so good. Her authority in this is so good. The line reads, uh, as Kate just said, so good. She's, she's as always, she's perfect. Mm -hmm. Well, and also after she goes in and calls Rob a fucking asshole, she like nicely says hi to someone as she's leaving, which is like... (laughs) The perfect detail. <laughs> yes. Sarah, what do you say? So my pick is actually Jack Black because I, as okay. I said, I just love that he strolled into this movie and like just pocketed the 21st century, I think, was just <laughs> like, you're with me now. And that was so nice of him. And he secretly is the way forward that this movie presents for masculinity, I think. Not the character so much as Jack Black himself. And I think that's very exciting for all of us. Hmm. Yeah, Yeah. I'll take it. Not that Jack Black has all the answers, but like, just look at him, you know? He has some of the answers. He has some of the answers. (laughs) Yes, some (laughs) Um, Kate, thanks for bringing this to us. How do people find you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at girly underscore juice, as in juice that is girly. Uh, (laughs) I have two books out. One of them is 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do. The other one is 200 Words to Help You Talk About Sexuality and Gender. And I'm the co-host of two podcasts. One of them is The Dildorks, which is about sex, dating, and masturbating. The other one is Question Box, which is the game show podcast of shockingly personal questions. Beautiful. Beautiful. 
All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a Feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much to Kate Sloan for being on the show, for talking about this movie with us, for bringing this movie to us. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the show and editing. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the show. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make our episode sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you for supporting the show on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions. We love that you help make this a job for us. We appreciate it. Find us on Twitter and Instagram with uh, whatever messages you want to send our way. We love hearing from you. And yeah, that's it for this week. Enjoy your summer as we uh, creep our way into it. (laughs) We'll talk with y'all again soon. Talk with you next week. Don't forget that you, my friend, are good.